You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. All right, well, let's head into our series, a series called I Am. I, I've spilt coffee all over my sermon today, uh, so I'm going to work through this. Like, if you don't know uh, me well, here's a couple things that you'll, if you haven't figured this out, I make up words all the time. I don't know if you've figured this out or not, but I make up words in my sermon. That's okay. Rappers have creative license. Why not pastors? That's what I say. And secondly, if you have not noticed, there's always a stain on my shirt every single week, right? It's either throw up for my son, coffee, powder, donuts. It's just, it's always there. You can find it. It's guaranteed. And so that I spilled coffee on my sermon today should not be a surprise to you. Well, we're going to talk about Jesus saying that I am the resurrection and the life. And we're going to walk through what is considered probably to be one of the seminal stories of all of our scripture, where Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. And so we're going to meander our way through most of this passage in John 11 that is both fundamental in its understanding, but very practical in its wisdom. And so we're going to meander our way through this and stop and chat from time to time. But here's what I want you to take into our reading today, into this scripture today. Just four thoughts to have. One, I want you to notice, I want you to notice the peace and composure of Jesus. The second, I want you to notice the emotional availability of a man called Jesus. The second, or the third, is I want you to notice, you to notice Jesus' presence here amongst the people. And then lastly, I want you to notice his claims, the truth that he makes. And so let's just take a moment and pray before we jump into our word today, and then we'll head forward. Lord, you have told us that your word will never go void. And so, Lord, will you humble our hearts, remove the distractions of our minds and our worlds, and will you help us just to submit and come underneath this glorious truth? Will you use its truth to bring conviction and guidance and joy and peace into our life? Lord, will your spirit bring life to these scriptures that our whole life would be affected by them? And so, Jesus, we just love you, we trust you, and we pray this through your blood, through the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, John 11 is where we're at. We'll have it on the screen. You're welcome to go on your phones and look up this as well. It's important that you see the scripture as it is written. So we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to head all the way through verse 47 today, and we'll stop along the way. So let's start in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness 
does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There is a rich wisdom in this text right here that says that God uses all of our struggles, all of our failings, all of our hardships. In life, we will face a multitude of problems, and those problems will come to us by various scenarios, some through our own decisions, some as consequences of others' decisions, some seemingly as blind luck. But there is a common thread in them. The first is this, is that God allows those that he loves to struggle. God allows those whom he loves loves to struggle. There are teachers who try to tell us, pastors who would tell you that it is God's desire on earth if you have enough faith that you'll never struggle, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. That is a false teaching. Jesus allows those that he loves to struggle. The second thing that we take from this scripture is that he wants to use all of our life. He wants to leverage the good and the bad for his glory, for his fame, that through our circumstances, the world around us might see him more beautifully through our seeking, through our desire, through our humility, through our love of him, that the sheep of God, we might intensify the gaze of others through our struggles on the good shepherd, on him who guides us. Now, we know the story ends with Lazarus being raised from the dead, and we certainly esteem that to be a, a happy ending. But we have to remember that the promise of this scripture isn't that life will go according to our plan. But the hope in this scripture is that God uses all things in our life, good or bad, for his glory, that the world would know him more through it. And so whatever comes after this verse in John 11, we know that Jesus will use it in a way to bring him the most glory. And so let's look at verse five here. Verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, there's a glorious truth that I want to visit later that Jesus names the ones that he loves, that John, the writer of this gospel, is inspired to write specific individual names of those he loves. That's going to be good truth for us later. But here we have an unexpected reality, an unexpected reality. We'd expect nothing more than this giant of a man, Jesus, to hear this news and drop all that he had full of divine compassion and race towards the scene and save the day, or at minimum, that he would do what he did with the servant of a Roman centurion, a story that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, where he healed this man's servant from far away by his word. At minimum, all Jesus needed to do was say, he's well, rise, and he could have raised him from the dead. Jesus is about a, a day's travel away from Lazarus. But what do we see Jesus do? Nothing. Zip. He waits two days. And what we learn from that 
is that life doesn't just work according to God's will, but it works according to his time. For many of us, God's did not seem timely enough. Yet whether we know it or not, God's will and God's time are always in sync at the right moment. Paul reminds us of this glorious truth when he writes to the Galatians. He says, just at the right moment, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. God always has the right time. He's never a minute late. And sometimes, sometimes that means we wait. Sometimes that means we wait. Some of you in here today are waiting. You're waiting for God to tell you something, to show up, to make things right. And friends, listen, there is a goodness that can happen in our waiting that far exceeds that which we are waiting for. If you're a kid in here, you're going to be raised in a world that's going to teach you that everything is up for instant gratification. That what you need to do is learn how to get what you want sooner and faster and quicker. Can you hear, friends, the beauty of a scripture that tells you that there is a profound meaning in waiting? Waiting on the Lord. And sometimes the waiting itself is all that it is. That we in dependency and weakness would seek him. That waiting might be the reason for all that is happening in your life. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is a wounded man in several parts of Judea. He certainly hasn't made any friends with the Jewish leadership in the last couple months by the things that he is saying. His disciples are worried about his security, his health. Rightfully so. It would be the practice of that day for you to work during the daylight. When the sun was shining, you would work. During the night, you would rest. So that meant in the summer, you worked longer hours and rested less. In the winter, you worked less and rested more. Always by the light of the sunlight. So the sun was the grandiose illumination of the day. And so Jesus' proclamation here is that they need not to worry about darkness, about good or evil triumphing over them, because they are walking with the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, and if they walk with him, they need not fear. And that is true for us as believers. If we walk with the light of the world, yes, there are consequences to living in a broken creation, and yes, there will be struggles that face us, but they need not overcome us 
They need not make us surrender in fear and worry and desperation. We have the light of the world in our life. And we can hope and trust in him. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they had thought that it meant he was taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that he's not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Scripture talks about death in two different terms. The first is what we read here, this terminology being asleep. To be asleep means to be one who is in right relationship with God, one who has found favor with the Lord, that their body is dead, but their spirit is alive in the presence of God. And that is a glorious hope for all of us who have faith, who trust in the name of Jesus, that one day our bodies will die. Dust will return to dust, but our spirit will live with him in the presence of the Lord until his second coming, when we will then be reunited with heavenly resurrected bodies here on earth. That is our hope as well. And so when you read the term asleep, it it signifies not a real death, but a spiritual death, one who is bodily dead, but spiritually alive. And then there's the term dead. And so if you read the term dead, it means what it means. It's they're dead and nothing more until the day of judgment with God. We are dead in our sins. Our disciple friends needed to be educated on them. I certainly, in that time, would have had been educated. I needed to be educated by Jesus as they did. I want you to notice the sense of loyalty that is present with the disciples here. They have a dependable, at times, loyalty. They're stupid at times, but man, they are loyal. And again, if I were there too, I think that would be said of me. Thomas, who we know as Doubting Thomas, is said to be the twin. Now, this is capitalized, so what does it mean? This is is what has been handed down from generations, from scholars, from theologians, from people of past. There is a belief that Thomas looked like Jesus. And so if anyone had a concern about people wanting to kill Jesus, it would be somebody who looked like him. And so Thomas is known as the twin. And so, look, I don't know if you guys have this. I know the grief and mourning of having a celebrity doppelganger. I mean, Tom Cruise, I get confused with him all the time. I get it, right? The fact that Thomas is here saying, let's go and die, that's a pretty courageous statement because he looks like Jesus. Now, what I want you to notice in this is that Thomas is loyal to God. He's loyal to Jesus. He died for him in a moment, but he has no idea what it means to live for him in the current. And might that be said of us? Might that be said of us that we would take a bullet for Jesus? That if somebody today came up to us 
threatening to kill us and said, do you believe in Jesus? We might in that moment say yes and be loyal to him. But yet, would there be a single evidence in our life that we know how to live for him? Loyalty demands a one-in-a-lifetime decision. Faith is more than loyalty. Faith means more than loyalty. It's a different kind of death. Not from a bullet of an executioner, but through the willful surrender of our own soul as we die to self because of the magnitude of God's love and mercy for us that we daily surrender to him willfully and gladly. That is a life of faith. Now, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brothers. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So the dude is dead. He's dead, and if there was any doubt that he might be alive, it's gone. Like, no one is going to conceive this to be coincidence. No one is going to say, oh, maybe he was just resting. Nobody is going to say that he was in a coma. He's dead. And the length of time that he is dead gives lots of people in that day time to come and mourn and grieve with Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha both deal with their mourning and grief differently. Mary, if you read scripture, knows she's a notorious busybody. And so when she hears of Jesus coming, she rushes out to meet him. But Mary is so overcome by grief, she's immovable. And so the wisdom in this text is not that we should grieve a certain way, because we sh- it's the wisdom of the text is that we should grieve, whatever that is, that we should take time to grieve and mourn, and even more than that, that we should go and visit those who mourn themselves. Verse 21, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know, he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so Martha and Mary's communication here tell of a common posture that humanity has against God. Lord, if you had been there, Lord, if you had done this, surely things would have been different. Martha's grief is shared with Jesus, and she's not disappointed in the person of Christ. She's disappointed that he wasn't there. And aren't these the same questions that we sometimes want to ask of the Lord or do ask of the Lord when tragedy strikes our life? Like, Lord, where were you? How could you have let this happen? Couldn't you have stopped this heartache and pain from ever happening? 
And the truth is, is that we may never know the answer to those questions. But we do have a hope that goes far beyond them. And here's why. Jesus responds to Martha and says that, hey, your brother will rise from the grave. And that is met with a common belief in that day. Martha would have been familiar with God's servant named Daniel the prophet who prophesies that one day in the end of all time that God's people will awaken from their slumber. They will be resurrected into new bodies. Martha believes that she will see her brother again just at the end of all time, not at the end of this conversation. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He uses this phrase again, I am, ego of me, I am, I am, the great I am, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus isn't saying that he's heard about a resurrection and life. He isn't saying that he can teach you about resurrection and life. He isn't saying to you that he can reveal you hints and strategies to live a resurrected life. He is saying that he is the resurrected life. That through him and by him and for him, all of creation can be made alive. That through him and by him and for him, those who live will never perish. It is a reordering of creation. Where sin and death had reigned since the days of Adam, Jesus was here to restore life for our dead, sinful selves. He brings dead things back to life. All of us by faith, all of us by faith, have experienced a resurrection in some sorts, that we were dead to God in our sins, but now we are alive to God through Christ. We have new birth. We have been raised from our deadness. But Jesus doesn't raise us to release us. He raises us and he keeps us. His life is all sustaining and all satisfying. He is the good shepherd of his sheep which means that whatever is happening in our life, whether we have answers for it or not, we know that he's there and he's present and he's working. We may never have the answers that we want, but we have a savior who's near, who's present and working. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? 
But some of them said, could not he have who could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Listen, there is an assertion in our culture today that to be a man is to be one that shows no emotion. That to be a man is to be one who certainly does not cry. There are some in this room who have never heard the phrase, I love you, from their father. Can we just take note of how emotionally healthy and available Jesus is in this moment? And to gaze upon the prior scripture that denoted Jesus' individual love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Individual love. His love is known by his people. It is not assumed. Christ knows the outcome of this event. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. And he's known for some time that he's going to do it. Yet are we not moved by his capacity to be present in the moment that he does not worry about the future? He's moved by his people. Jesus weeps. So moved that others around him say, see how he loved him. Men here, if you're young or you're old, if you're a child, can we see in Jesus, a form of masculinity that needs to be elevated, to be available and present, to not fear emotion, to not be troubled by tears or the words, I love you. Some of you in this room might need to be the first in your generations, in your family, to say the words, I love you to your children. Words that you have never received and always longed for that you are withholding from your people, from your family. Someone in here must break the curse. Is it you? Christ is a full man and he is fully God. He is not an inspiration. He's not a model. He's the exact imprint of what we should aspire to be. And then on top of that, do we notice the value of his presence? Do you realize that your words are meaningless sometimes? What is far more powerful is your presence. Being present with people. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around you, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, 
who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Friends, Jesus doesn't see life the way that we see it. He doesn't see life the way that we see it. No suffering, no pain, no trial is wasted in the kingdom of God. No pain is empty or endless or hopeless. God is using all of it to accomplish his purpose for his glory and for our good. In the moment of Martha's grief over her dead brother Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Through that statement, Jesus is reminding Martha that her hope is not tied to some specific event or set of circumstance. Her hope, our hope, is not in a pain-free life. Jesus' goal is not that Martha has a pain-free existence. It is to teach her something through the pain. It is to accomplish something through her pain. Jesus wants Mary and Martha to shift their hope from earthly circumstances to him, the resurrection. Martha and Mary's eyes are focused on the closed tomb of their brother Jesus, or brother Lazarus. Jesus wants them to focus their attention on the soon-to-be-empty grave of their Savior, Death is certain for all of us. But Jesus offers us life. Because here's the thing. Lazarus was risen in this moment, but he's dead today. He died again. Jesus raised him from the dead only for him to die again. But in a just a few short months from this moment, Jesus will be beaten, tortured, and killed, and he'll be raised from the dead, never to die again. And his resurrection is ours, and his abundant life is our substance and satisfaction. And so for those of you who trust in the name of the Lord, the faithful of God, realize that this current world in this current moment, you are as far away from heaven as you will ever be. You are as far away from his kingdom and his presence as you will ever be. We see dimly now, but one day we will see him face to face. He is resurrection. He is life. And the sobering truth of us without faith is this, is that life here in this current world is as close to heaven as we'll ever get. It's as close to heaven as you'll ever get. This is as good as it will get. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He does not say he's bringing these things. Jesus is the embodiment of the undoing of the curse of sin. Jesus is saying that he is the resurrection for a dying and dead creation. He is the hope for the entire world and he's the hope for you. Suffering and death is not the end of our story because it is not the end of Christ's story. And may that be for your joy today. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus that we can join together 
as a community of broken but hopeful people seeking to love what he loved, to live as he lived, to do what he taught, to strive to be faithful to him in this our time and place. Today, we participate in a meal called communion. It's a meal that we remember Jesus. We remember his promises, the price that he paid for us, the things that he did, the things that he said. On the night before Jesus died, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and he poured it out saying, this is the new covenant Remember me. And so today we remember. We remember his life, remember his love, his friendship, his teaching, his dying, his raising to life again. So in this shared meal together, we proclaim some shared truth. It is our proclamation today in this supper that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Can we say those things together as God's church? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That is true. The body of Christ, the bread of life, is represented in your cracker. The lifeblood of Christ, the club of blessing, is represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God for God's people. And we are thankful for these gifts. And so if you're in here today and you're in the family of God, if you profess Christ by faith, join us at the table. Scripture tells us to be serious about taking communion serious about partaking in it. And so if you're in here today and you don't have faith in Jesus, know that it is okay not to participate. If you're in here today and you don't feel peace in your spirit about joining around the table, it is okay to wait. So let's take a few moments and reflect and pray, ask for forgiveness, seek it where we need to. And when you're ready, individually take up the cup, take up the cracker and the juice. And then if you feel led, join us in a time of worship.